Dear people of God, if you would please take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 2, the second psalm in your Psalter. As you do so, there are just two things I would like to say to us this evening before we begin the reading. First, I would like to thank the session for this wonderful opportunity to bring the Word of God to you. Uh, it is a great privilege and an honor. Uh, second, I would like to thank all of you for your prayers. Uh, as an intern here at this church, I am very aware that all of you pray for your pastor, for your elders, for your deacons, and even your two interns, and we are most grateful for this. But I want to especially thank you for your prayers to me, for, for me this, this evening, uh, especially my, my wife, my mother, my father, and, and all of you, my spiritual family. I do uh, thank you for this. But I would ask you to come once more with me in prayer as we seek the Lord's favor this evening. So please bow your heads and pray with me. Holy Father, we thank you for your word, which is weighty, glorious, and true for all generations. And I ask that this scripture this evening would be an encouragement to the faith of your people. Christ has died for all these gathered because you love them. And I ask that this evening you would pour out your love through my lips, through my youthful lips, to speak an edifying word to them from your inerrant scriptures. And we ask this in the name of Christ Jesus, the King. Amen. As the Lord has given you the ability, please stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word, and please listen as I read the very words of God to us this evening. Psalm 2, beginning in verse 1. Why do the nations rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart, and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. The grass withers and the flower fades, and even heaven and earth itself will pass away, but these words will stand forever. Please be seated. Before we properly dive into the text this evening, let me give you a brief introduction to our sermon series that we are beginning on the Psalms. Psalm 2, I will be preaching to you this evening, even though Psalm 1 is the first psalm, but Pastor David will present that to you, will preach that to you in the weeks to come. He will give a more full introduction to the book of Psalms, but let me just make a few quick comments. The book of Psalms is like a small Bible to us. They reflect on the relationship of God to man, of God's sovereign work in the lives of His people. And the Psalms are, f f are full, they cover a full range of the human emotions, and they bear truths to us which move us even today. The Psalms are songs, they are poetry, and their authors, carried along by the Holy Spirit, were thoughtful and careful in how they structured their songs. 
The poetry of these psalms can sometimes describe feelings which would otherwise escape us, which we couldn't put into words, and they capture our emotions. The book of Psalms is arranged into five smaller books, and these all, 1 through 150, are arranged thematically. We see a trend from humiliation to exaltation and praise. And as we have just ended our sermon in Chronicles, the history of the people of God's, of God's people, the people of Israel, that's the history, that's the context, that's where these psalms are coming out of, from Exodus to the exile in Babylon. There are just a few main types of psalms that we can think about. We can think about psalms being hymns, psalms of lamentation, psalms of thanksgiving, psalms of wisdom, and royal psalms. And as I hope you've picked up tonight, our psalm tonight is a royal psalm, a psalm which is written for a king, a psalm which praises the king for his majesty and makes much of his greatness, a psalm that praises him for what he has done and what he will do for his people. Songs of praise to a king are frequent in the history of mankind, and you can think about psalms like Beowulf, a psalm that is a long ballad written to praise this king who is a dragon slayer and a defender of his people. Or you can think about the Greeks, when their songs, their great, long, rambling songs, praising men of great strength and might in battle. You see, it is in our human nature, in our very DNA, to put our allegiance, to give our allegiance to someone, to serve someone. And the question for us tonight, the question that this psalm would put to us, is will we serve this king, the king of this psalm, or will we be smashed and perish in the way? Will we follow the king or rulers that we hope to save our nation, lower our taxes, or bring about whatever social reform we so desire, or will we serve the Lord's anointed and him alone? As we look at this psalm tonight, please see four things with me. Four things. First, please see with me rebellion against God. Second, response from God. Third, royalty from God. And finally, reign of God. So first, please see with me in verses 1 through 3, rebellion against God. The psalmist opens with a question, why? And this why is supposed to be one of surprise and horror. The sense of the question is, what are you doing? This, this is beyond the bounds of human reason. And we see the content of the question in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? This is a rhetorical question. It's a question asked to, get an obvi- to provoke an obvious answer, or in this case, the lack of an obvious answer. It's like when you ask your son who jumps off the roof and now is raging because he's busted up, well, did you think you were going to fly? Well, these nations are not going to fly or even stand in their rebellion. But notice with me a very important assumption that the psalmist makes. In verse 1, he says, the nations are all raging and they're plotting in vain. You know the really good stories, as Samwise Gamgee would tell us, the stories that are full of darkness and danger, these are stories where the darkness seems like it's so powerful, it will prevail. But that's not this story. The nations rage and their ragings might be terrible and the people's plottings might be cunning, but it's all in vain. All this, all this rebellion is vanity, so much so that the prophet would remind us that this is not even an attack on the Lord. And David, and it is David that writes this psalm as we find in Acts 4, David is preaching to his soul. Throughout his life, there were times when God did not seem like he was in control of David's life, and David, his soul felt abandoned by the Lord. Even though he felt this thing, he preaches this psalm to himself to remind himself of the sovereignty of God. 
You see, God is not like our kings who have to wage a long, drawn-out war to defeat his enemies. He's not like our heroes who have to overcome self-doubt or go through training montages filled with spectacular 80s music. He does not have to go on a long quest to get the strength to defeat his enemies. No, God is sovereign now. And all the raging and all the plottings of these nations are vain now. And we praise the God of this psalm because of his sovereignty over the nations. But notice with me verse 2. Notice how the rebels are singled out by their representatives. The kings of the earth are all setting themselves up, and the rulers are gathering themselves together, and all the ordinary people follow. More on that later. But these kings are those who have supreme power. They are rulers, they are they're rulers and princes and governors of their day, and they are gathering themselves together to make a name for themselves. This is a tr- meeting of treasonous traitors. These are governments who promote their gods over the worship of Israel's true Redeemer. These are the Babylonians and the Assyrians we've been hearing about. These are the Moabites and the Philistines who've been oppressing and enticing Israel away with false worship. And more importantly, these are all the nations who are trying to stop God's plan of redemption. These are all the nations whose representatives do not recognize the kingship of their Creator, and they do not submit to the lordship of His anointed. This is the Creator who they are rebelling against in verse 2. They are conspiring against the Lord and His anointed, and the anointed here is the word for, I know you know this, Messiah. We see Christ's title being used by David to speak about Christ being equal with the Father. You see, an attack on the authority of the Father is the same as an attack on the authority of His anointed because they are equal in power and glory. But notice with me also verse 3. Notice the nature of this attack and the nature of sin itself. Sin has always been the problem. Sin has been with us from the beginning, and David has all of the sin of mankind in view here because he's thinking back to the first sin in the Garden of Eden. When Satan came to tempt Eve. He made Eve believe that God's commands were not good for her. His temptation was to throw off the commands, throw away the cords of God, and live life your way. The nature of sin is first and foremost a breaking of relationship between, between ourselves and our Creator. And all of mankind is now bent in this direction. Sin is to throw off the good commands God gives us. And this is a biblical view of reality. We believe with David that all the peoples of the earth, they hate the good commands of God. And they do not submit to his authority. We see them setting themselves up against the light of nature, against the law of God written in their hearts. What is evil they call good, and what is good they call evil. God honoring morality they call bigotry and backwardness and wrong. And we should not be surprised when they offer worship to creation rather than the Creator. This is raging and murderous hatred of God. But the the nations do not just rage against the Lord. In Acts chapter 4, the church is growing. The church is being added, uh, to the church is being added uh, people who are being converted day by day. And the world hates this church, and persecution soon comes. And wicked plots and ravaging murder soon beset the church. And the disciples quote this very psalm. They see the whole city, all of Jerusalem, gathering together against the gospel going forward. And they quote this very psalm. 
You see, it's not just against the Lord that there is raging, but also against His church and those who follow Him. Perhaps you've experienced the outright or perhaps even the passive-aggressive way the world will deal with you as a child of God. The children of the world are children of wrath, and they will hate us for being Christians. So let us arm ourselves with this biblical truth. Let us be forewarned that those who rage against the Messiah and our King will rage against us too. This is the Bible's view of man, and may we not forget it. But secondly, please see with me response from God. The second place, response from God in verses 4 through 6. Our God is a jealous God, and He brooks no rival. The first commandment, the first of the Big Ten, we might say, is that the Lord's people can have no other gods before Him. In VBS, we teach the catechisms to the children, and there is a question that goes as such, are there more gods than one? And in a good Scotch Presbyterian fashion, we get them to pound their fist and say, no, there is but one only, the living and true God. Our God will give His glory to no other, and He will brook no rival to His name. So in verse 4, we see the response from heaven. And the response to a wicked rebellion is laughter and scorn. This laughter is at the pomp and the power of men, and God is unimpressed. Let's remember that this is poetry. The prophet here is describing God's divine attitude towards these rebels. A similar poetic verse can be found in Job 41, 29, where we read, The Leviathan laughs at the rattlings of javelins. You see, this gargantuan creature whom God has created and filled with strength and power to crush all before it, it laughs at the sticks men bring against it. The point of this laughing is theological. God is not maniacally making merry over sin. He never makes light of sin, and He never finds it funny. But the point of this is, point of this laughing is that God's power and His sovereignty are so vast, so immeasurable, that these puny rebels have nothing in all their vigorous ragings and all of the cunningness of their plots against Him. This is like the fly attacking the elephant or the dog barking at the moon. It's a no-contest matchup. But notice verse 5. Notice the characteristics of the Lord's response. Can the response of a holy God a righteous triune God to an unholy people be anything but judgment. And this judgment is terrible. It is a judgment that comes in glorious fury and righteous might against the mockers of the Trinity. In the day of the Lord, in the final day of judgment, He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury as you see. In verse 5, the same voice, the same voice that made the heaven and the earth, the seas, and all that they contain, this same voice will utterly ruin the rebellious and the wicked. The voice of the Lord is described as shaking the mountains and causing the sea to boil. The judgment of the wicked will not only terrify the wicked, but it will cause creation to stand aghast at the horror. Remember Exodus 19, when the people of Israel approach Mount Sinai, the Lord speaks to them from the mountain and the people recoil in fear. This is a God who has just redeemed them. He has proven that He is on their side. And God is not speaking to them in judgment, but fatherly instruction. And they can't handle it. Well, how much more so will, be, will the wicked men not be able to handle the voice of the Lord coming to them in wrath? 
and to better understand the Lord's response. Look also with me at verse 6. Notice how the Lord, in His response, has set His king on Zion, my holy hill. The Lord is not reacting to the wicked. He doesn't see their actions and then come up with His own plan. Rather, the Lord is working. Right now, even as David is writing this psalm, you see David is preaching God's sovereignty to himself. He's counteracting the biblical worldview of man with the doctrine of God's sovereignty. And like you and me, David is disturbed when he hears about news, when he hears the news, when he hears the international news. But David comforts himself with the covenant promise that God gave to him in 2 Samuel 7. God said to David that he was going to raise up a king from David's offspring. God was going to establish his kingdom for forever. And God said, I will be to him a father, and he shall be my son. You see, dear Christian, the only thing that can give you or me or David peace in a world surrounded by raging nation, nations and plotting peoples is the sovereignty of God. The fact that God sits in, enthroned in heaven and can never be moved is the only thing that can give us peace. David probably did not feel like God was always in charge, and at many times David did feel abandoned and felt far away from the preserving power of God, like when he's in the caves, when his life is hanging by a thread, when he's fleeing from his own son who's seeking to kill him. And he writes this psalm to remind himself. He rallies his soul with this truth that God's king, the true king, who will reign forever is coming. If your soul is weary, if you feel the biting, the stinging, the dulling blows of the world coming against you for being a Christian, then we can comfort ourselves with this psalm. Our God in heaven has sent the true king. If we feel beaten down by the raging of unbelievers against us, then know that our God is ever ruling over their lives as well as ours. But let's more, learn more about this Redeemer King uh, in verse 6 by looking at, thirdly, the Redeemer King, the royalty from God. Royalty from God in verses 7 through 9. This point is a bit more theologically heady, so I ask you, as Pastor, David, Pastor Cliff would say, strap on your theological caps for a moment. Let's be theologians together. The King now speaks in verse 7, and he says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The sovereign decrees of God are His fixed plan, His eternal purpose, His holy purpose that He established before the creation of the earth. God is perfect, and we believe that His every plan is perfect. We believe that His decrees cannot change. They cannot be made more perfect. They cannot fail. They must all be true. And the King will declare this decree that God will glorify the Son. And who makes this decree known to us? Who is it that comes to us, takes on flesh, and makes this decree true? Surely it is Christ Jesus, our Lord. Why is it that God in heaven laughs? Why is it that God holds all of these rebels in scorn and derision? It is because the kingdom of Christ is so much more sure. It is because the kingdom of Christ is not, will not fail because it is set up with true divine authority. And this decree must be proclaimed. Look again at verse 7. Some will try to say that if today Christ is begotten, then today, yesterday, yesterday, He was not. But please believe with me that the Scriptures 
and the church never say it was a time when Jesus was not. The blood of the martyrs testify that Christ is the eternal Son of God. And so in order to understand this, remember with me God's promise to David. Remember that God promised David he would be a father to this Davidic king. This is a future thing. We're looking for a new king in the future. And in the New Testament, Paul explains this text for us. He's preaching to the people in Antioch, and he quotes Psalm 2. He says that Christ was condemned according to the prophets. He says that though he was innocent, being guilty of nothing, they still asked for him to be crucified. And having died, he was buried. And after three days, God raised him from the dead. And when Jesus rose from the dead, all of God's promises were yes and amen in, in Christ. And all the looking forward was over. Our salvation was accepted in the eyes of God and justice smiled and asked no more. Paul says then, in that moment, the promises of David, promises to David were fulfilled, were fulfilled. On that day, the Father said to Christ, You are my son today, the day that you are victorious, I have begotten you. When Christ fulfilled the mission of the Father, Christ entered into the holy and sure blessings of David. You see, Christ was always the Son of God, but in being obedient to the Father, even to the point of death on a cross, He enters into His inheritance. He shows Himself worthy, the worthy Son, worthy of all the inheritance the Father could lavish upon Him. He is coronated as the victorious King. And the greatest gift, the greatest gift, the chief treasure Christ could re receive as our representatives is sonship, sonship of the Father. But notice with me more about this inheritance. Look at verse 8. The, the nations are there as an inheritance of the Son, and they are there for the asking. The boundaries of the kingdom of Christ are not just scribblings on a map. They are the map. The boundaries of the kingdom of Christ are from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation, and the ends of the earth are the boundaries of His kingdom. This is truly a royal, a royal inheritance and a truly divine kingship. But in addition to being set up as the eternal, all-sovereign ruling king, the son from the line of David also receives authority. In verse 9, the Lord, Father said to the Son, Sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies a footstool for you. And Jesus inherits authority over all the nations. After his resurrection from the dead, Christ charges his followers with the Great Commission. But before he sends his disciples out, and before he gives them the charge, he says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So who would dare to oppose the Son enthroned in this resurrection glory? Well, look again with me at verse 9, please. All those who raise their hands against the Son's authority, and there will be many. All those who raise their hands against His church, all of these will be dashed with a rod of iron and crushed like a potter's vessel. You see, the scepter of the king is not just for courtly show. The scepter in the hand of Christ is not just to show who is king. The rod in his hand is for judgment. And we can be sure that the king will defend his kingship against all who would come against him. For the Christian, I would like to remind you of the words of our catechism, our Westminster Confession, our Westminster Catechism, question 26. 
How does Christ execute the office of king? And the answer, Christ executes the office of king by subduing us to himself. In ruling and defending us, in restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies. All of us who know the subduing power of Christ in our lives, and let us know and be comforted by the promise of this psalm that Jesus shall reign where ere the sun does its successive journeys run. Know that all those who take the Savior's name in vain and reject his love, all of those will be judged by our King. All of those who ridicule and mock you for singing the praises of Christ, they will be judged. But if there are any here tonight who have not submitted themselves to the love of Christ, to the rule of Christ, then I ask you to look at this King. Behold His eternal power and justice and turn from your rebellion. Do not think that you can run away from the rule of Christ, but listen to the call of our final point. So please see fourthly, and finally with me, the reign of God. The reign of God in verses 10 through 12. Two kingdoms appear before us in this psalm. The kingdom of this world with the rulers and princes and the kingdom that is established and ruled over by the Lord of hosts, Jesus himself. In verse 10, we see a call and a warning. The kings of this world are called upon to be wise. That is, to be instructed in wisdom. They must begin to fear the Lord. And if they fear the Lord, then they will begin to be wise. The fear of the Lord is and ought to be the attitude of all God's children. All of those who call upon the name of the Lord must honor the Lord with the respect and the humility that is appropriate for creatures calling upon their Creator. And the wicked are warned as well. They are warned that they are living their lives on the railroad tracks before the imminent freight train comes through. They are ordering their affairs and using their power to build up houses of straw before the face of the hurricane of God's wrath. All the peoples of the earth need to be warned that a day is coming when the offer to repent will no longer be extended. A day is coming when the Son of God will exercise His authority, will wield His scepter to smash, to break all of His enemies. We will not always be able to kiss the sun, but one day our knees will be made to bow before His reign. The way to be wise, the way to gain understanding is in verse 11. We serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. We rejoice. The Lord is King. The Lord, our King, we adore. We lift up our trembling hearts before Him and we sing. We triumph evermore. It is no oversight that the prophet here, David here, addresses the kings and the rulers specifically. Remember with me the history of Israel that we have just gone through. Remember that the history of Israel is recorded through the actions and the spiritual state of the kings of Judah and Israel. You see, there is a principle in Scripture that as the king goes, so go the people. If the king should be a man after God's own heart, if he should govern his people well, if he will write a copy of God's law so that he will make all of his judgments in righteousness, then the people will prosper. But if the king sets up Baal worship in Dan and Bethel, if he brings in other lovers and he leads the people into idolatry, then the people surely will follow. 
then they, not just the king, they all are worthy of the wrath and the curse of God. It is no accident that God leaves out the ordinary people and all the nations because they are included by warning their representatives. We all fell in Adam, did we not? We all are stained with his original sin, so much so that in Adam's sin, we are all worthy of the wrath and curse of God. So the question is, which king do we follow? Whom do we serve? Do we follow the king who perfectly obeyed every letter of God's law? Are we following the king by imitating his life of holiness? Are we denying ourselves, taking up our crosses and walking after him? Over our houses, do we fly the banner of King Jesus, the banner of love? Or are we serving the other lesser kings who set themselves up against the Lord and against his anointed? Serving the king and rejoicing in him are the ways we show that we are loyal, that we our allegiance is to the king. Following where he is led is the mark of a good and faithful servant. And let me uh, address a heart issue. Rejoicing with trembling is not something that we fully understand, that we fully think about very much, but this is the Christian heart. We rejoice because God is our chief end and Christ has brought us near. We rejoice because solid joys and lasting treasures are ours and ours alone in Christ. But we tremble as we rejoice because it is too much. We are like cups that tremble because they are overflowing with God's bounty. We're like trees that shake in the wind because their boughs, their branches are laid down with too much fruit. We cannot contain the presence of the triune God. We tremble at His drawing near as He draws near and fills us up. The question put to the Israelites and put to us tonight is, are you going to keep kissing your golden calves, your idols, your bales, your asherims, even your cult prostitutes, all of these are vanity, and all of the, those who kiss these idols will be crushed and broken like fine china. The command in verse 12 is to kiss the Son, to adore Him, to worship the Son, lest He and all of His authority, dominion, and honor becomes angry at us. To kiss the Son is to submit to His eternal authority, to accept Him in all of His offices, to receive Him as royalty and adorn our hearts to receive His kingly presence. To kiss the Son is to give Him our affection. To kiss the Son is to find our chiefest and all of our desires, our longings in Him. To wait for Him as a faithful bride waits for her husband, as the husband of integrity waits for her bride. But we are warned, brothers and sisters, if we do not kiss the Son, if we spurn His love, he will become angry, and we will perish in the way. Our God is a jealous God, and His anger is against the wicked, and He will by no means let the vile go unpunished. He therefore requires our loyalty, our service, our best service. His anger is kindled in a moment, and therefore we cannot give to Christ half measures. Our Savior withheld nothing from us in His redemption of us. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, poured himself out, setting aside the riches of heaven. The Son of God, our King, came down to be like us, weak and needy, dependent upon others for food, water. He became like the least of these, taking on the garb of a servant to serve us. 
Therefore, let us not insult this victorious king by offering half-hearted devotions or false service that is not from the heart. Let me close our time with, by giving you this promise and this great encouragement in verse 12. Look at the end of it. Blessed, blessed are all who take refuge in him, him being this great king. The blessed man, as we will learn about in Psalm 1, is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. The man, the blessed man, is not trying to throw off the commands of God like the nations and the peoples of our psalm. Rather, the blessed man meditates. He meditates on the goodness of God, and he preaches the sovereignty of God to himself, especially, especially when he feels like the world is crashing down around him, especially when he feels like the world is oppressing him and hating him because it has hated Christ first. He sings a new song to the Lord, for great and mighty are the things that the Lord has done for him. The blessed man sings to the Lord because the sovereign Christ has subdued him to himself. We praise Christ because he is our king. We praise him with this psalm because he has conquered and is conquering all of his and our enemies. So let us not take refuge in our loyalty, in our service to Christ. We cannot find comfort in our actions to him, our service of him. Rather, we need to take refuge from this psalm in the sovereignty of God. We find our peace and we take our refuge in the eternal decree, which will stand forever. His decree that Christ would come and be victorious, the victorious King, has come true in our sight, as the apostles will say. The rule of God has yet to be challenged by a foe, and all who rebel against the bonds of God's authority shall be crushed on the day of judgment. Let me leave you with this thought. Psalms like this, should help us love Christ for who He is and not purely for what He has done for us. He is the victorious King who has conquered all of the rebellious nations. And let us then adorn ourselves, adorn our hearts with service in fear of Him and let us give ourselves to trembling rejoicing in His name. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we do... We do lift up our hearts in trembling and in rejoicing. We do ask, even as we had just sung, that you would, that you would be to us a God who, who is mighty, victorious, that you would be our God who has redeemed us and saved our life from the pit. Father, we thank you for the great gift of sonship, which comes to us through the perfectly obedient Christ. Father, we ask that we would be people who totally and completely submit to the reign of Christ in all of our lives, in all of the aspects of it. Father, we ask all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.